uh, this study this morning would appropriately come under the banner of the topic of repentance, repenting. Repenting is um, a work of God. It's nothing you can do. There's nothing that you can bring to the table to make God forgive you. It's not enough work that you can do. There's not enough religious ceremony that you can participate in. There's not enough money that you could give to God. There's not enough confession that you could log with a priest to absolve your sin. None of these things make you right with God. Repentance is something that God grants in the heart. Initially, 2 Timothy 2 calls repentance a gift. It's something that God works inside of you that then comes out of you in terms of a realistic confession of what you've done in view of a holy God. Repentance is a grace in the life of a believer. To not have repentance means that you are not believing and that your heart is still hardened. So we need to learn about what repentance really is. Practically speaking, repentance is a change of mind and mindset. You were thinking one way and now by God's intervening work, you're thinking a different way. It's what we prayed just as we began, that you would see Christ afresh, that you would see your sin in a new light as something that you want that's abhorrent to you, that you want to distance yourself from, and to 180 out, see Christ as the solution and the one whom you are charging towards. Um, God is the author of repentance, and it's a change of mind. The Greek word metanoia means change. Noia is a Greek word rooted in your mind. It's the Greek word nous. It's, uh, it's this change of mindset, and you see it in our text this morning. This morning is the parable of the two sons. It's verses, it's chapter 28 of Matthew, Matthew 28, verses 28 to 32. Let me read it for you, and you'll see the theme of repentance and mindset. Jesus began saying, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said to the same, said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For, God, for John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Um, everything comes down to mindset. Our culture is in a death spiral of mindset and thinking. There's no repentance in the eyes of our country in general. People are not going to God or going to church in droves these days. People are repulsed from God, and they are acting like the early Israel, the people of Israel in the Promised Land. If you 
sort of look back historically, you had Joshua, who was the leader of the Israelites, taking them into the promised land. He took the baton from Moses. In Joshua 24, he issues the charge. He says, it is evil in your eyes to serve. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. They were already going into idolatry. He says, whether gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So he drew a line in the sand. And in Joshua 24, 16 through 18, the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt in the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us from all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. So they're recounting all of God's faithfulness. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Well, that's a great commitment. It's great to say that, but was there really a change of mind? Well, if you go from Joshua to the book of Judges, you know that Before the monarchy, before kings were put into place, things were more and more chaotic. Judges were raised up to try to subdue the people. And by the end, in Judges 21, 25, sort of a a chapter break in this narrative on Israel, it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is a lack of repentance, a lack of mindset and difference. Our text Matthew 21 is a parable. There's a couple more parables that Jesus is going to teach and preach through during his Passion Week. It's Wednesday. He's, he's talking and giving potent, power-packed parables to create a dividing line between those who are repentant and those who are unrepentant. The Israelites who are apostatizing, not seeing Jesus for who he is, not wanting Jesus as Messiah, and then you have a few that are the remnant, the true followers of Christ who are standing up and following Jesus. You just remember, by way of review, kind of running into this um, second half of Matthew 21, I've made it one large sermon of Israel's devolving rejection of Christ versus five hopeful receptions of Christ. We're looking at the fourth reception of Christ, but the first was verses 12 to 16, where you've got Jesus cleaning out the racketeers, and he's, he's, he's wiping out the kind of scam artistry in the temple, And he's inviting the innocents, those who were lame and in need of the Lord, the children who were in the temple who were saying the Lord is Christ, the Messiah. And then verses 17 to 22, where Jesus is entering back into the city of Jerusalem and he he curses the fig tree and it's upended and roots are out. And it's a symbol, a, a destructive miracle, which is a symbol of Israel's rejection being apostate versus believers. And then frauds versus authentic. This is where Jesus is on the platform probably of Solomon's porch at, before, the, before the court of the Gentiles. And he's on trial with Um, those who are the chief priests and the elders, and they're confronting him, saying, by what authority do you do these things? How'd you cleanse the temple? How'd you uproot the fig tree? Where are you coming off? How are you healing these people? Is it the power of Satan or what? And Jesus is challenging back them, saying, where did the authority of John the Baptist come from? Remember that? And they said, well, we can't can't go with John or go against John because he's too popular. So they just say, we don't know. Jesus exposed them as frauds. 
But this exposure continues on with our text, verses 28 to 32. This is our fourth category of devolving rejection versus hopeful reception. This is a parable. There's going to be a couple of these in a row. And this parable is showing those who reject grace and those who receive grace. This is the difference between being repentant and unrepentant. Remember, it's a mindset thing. Verse 28, what do you think? Look at that phrase, that first question. Jesus is asking the chief priests and the elders on Solomon's porch. He's confronting them back. They've challenged him. He's saying, look, what do you think? What do you think about these things? You know, what's your mindset going to be? Verse 28 talks about a change of mind. Verse 32, changing your mind. What do you think about these things? And so then once he's got their attention, he begins. This is the two-faced versus the integrous. People who are duplicitous versus people who are whole. They're the same on the inside as the out. Believers who are whole, who have integrity versus two-faced unbelievers. He says, what do you think? And he addresses him saying, a man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, here it is, he changed his mind and went. Two sons are on display here. Anytime you talk about sons, you're talking about the tug of emotional heartstrings. Christ is extending grace to the first son, and he'll extend the same grace to the second son. What's the grace? The grace is to go work the vineyard. Go work the vineyard. That's the question. Son, go work in the vineyard today. Why is that grace? Well, it's not a harsh task to work the vineyard in this case. A vineyard is not like, hey, son, go cut the grass Or, hey, son, you know, go move the wood pile. Or, hey, son, go wash the car. Or, hey, you know, I'm I'm on a roll. You know, clear the snow. It's not that. This is, hey, come enjoy your vineyard. This is your privilege. It's lush. It's beautiful. It's viney. It's grapes. It's crushing grapes to build grape juice or wine. It's, It's this incredible opportunity. Go join this work. It's what he's offering. The son at first is blasé and says, nope, I don't see it. I don't want it. And then he does a 180. He changes his mind and goes into the work. This is a picture, by the way, of joining the kingdom of God. Come join this kingdom. He says, I won't. Then he quickly changes his mind, sees the privileges, and goes in. You remember the Old saying, actions speak louder than words. Or here's an aphorism or a phrase. It's better for a person who says, does the wrong thing at first and then turns around immediately and does the right thing. That's what you want. That's what you want in a good employee. Somebody who makes a mistake and then shifts and does right. It's a decision that is filled with integrity. This is a picture of a life choice. And Jesus is saying, think about this kind of person. This is a person who is genuinely metanoia, genuinely repentant, a change of mindset by the work of the Holy Spirit. It goes on to the second son in verse 30. And he went to the other son and said the same. He, give, he issues the exact same, same challenge. Work the vineyard. Hey, what do you think? I mean, the first son, 
Bad attitude at first, shifts his mind. Good attitude goes in. Second son, what does he do? He answered, I go, sir. I'm in. But did not go. Now, again, first hour I didn't have teenagers in the room. Second hour I do. So I'll just cautiously tread this. But, you know, raising kids, raising kids. I know you can't relate to me. But do you ever ask your kids, you know, will you clean that up? Will you pick that up? Will you do the dishes? Will you cut the grass? Right? And they say, I got you. I got it. I'm good. And then they don't. They don't. And they were never going to do it in the first place. That's the amazing insight as a parent, right? But we're all like that. We're all like that. We want to do right by the Lord and we say, I'll do it. And then we don't. I'm going to join that Bible study. I'm going to be part of that group. I'm going to show up. I'm going to engage. I got it, God. I know what you're asking me to do. And you were never going to do it in the first place. The Bible says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You're supposed to have integrity. Born about by the Holy Spirit. You want to do the right thing. You know the right thing to do and you don't do it. And to that person, it is sin, James says. You know, I I can put this on me for a second. Growing up, I cut a lot of grass. I was born and raised in uh, on the East Coast in the southern part of you know the world, um, and grass grows there. It just grows and grows. And so during the summer months, you're just cutting grass. Like every five days, it's grass, grass, and more grass. Bag the grass and do this. Go get gas. And you know, I I got a little pay for that, which was good. But it was rough, and I I never really had a great attitude about burning in the hot sun and cutting grass. I just didn't like to do it. But one day, after I got married, was in an apartment, then we bought a house, and it was our first house, and it was in Arkansas, and it was for $63,000. That was the mortgage. It was really high, you know? Interest rate was low, 550 bucks a month for, for our mortgage payment. It was fantastic. And I'm sitting on the porch after I had cut the grass of my lawn. It's my lawn. It was different than my parents' lawn. This was my lawn. And I'm watching the water go back and forth, fan over the water. And I called my mom and dad. And I got them on the phone. And I said, hey, you know, I get it now. I understand what it means to really love cutting the grass. And they just were like, oh, great, whatever. Because it was my lawn. And that's what I think we need to think like with this. Are you in the vineyard? Is this your world, your kingdom? Or is it something you say that you want, but really you go, nah, I don't want it. You're blasé on God. God says, come in, and you're resisting really going in. You say, I go, sir, but then you don't really. You're two-faced. Matthew 5, 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Yes or no? You don't want to be duplicitous. Mr. Two-Face. James 4, 17, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. The first son said immediately no, but then turned around and said yes. The second son is without a conscience. The first has a conscience, the second son says, I'll go, but is stripped of a conscience and has a real problem. All comes down to mindset. This is, in fact, one of the most dangerous things you can do in life, by the way. This is a simple parable, simple story, easy to see, but it is potently dangerous to miss what is 
taught here by Jesus. Jesus is saying, don't miss grace. When God offers you the vineyard, go in. When he opens the door for your heart to be engaged by Christ, don't shut it. Go with God. I remember I was wrestling in my own conscience thinking, you know, am I supposed to go into seminary? I was 22 years old. I was in Southern California, and I just moved there from across the country. And I, you know, didn't have any pattern sin in my life. There was no reason not to go to seminary. I'd been training to be a pastor in undergraduate. I wanted to go to the next level. I'd just been hired at the master's college to go full-time there. That was going to put me through school. And I show up to the bank. I remember the local bank, and I'm going to open my bank account and start my new adult life there. But I was scared, and I was given... You know, I was having some trepidation over my own qualifications just to be able to serve him in full-time ministry. And it was my conscience was, was smarting. And, and serendipitously, I was standing right in front of the dean of the master's seminary's wife and B. Mayhew. And she's the mother of all the young single seminarian boys. And there we are. We're talking. And she begins to mother me and I'm talk to me and pull me out. And, hey, what, you know... What, what's bothering you? And I tell her, I said, my conscience, I just don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I'm up for the task or rightly qualified to do this mission. And she said, listen, it's when you aren't concerned about the state of your own soul. It's when you're not concerned about what God thinks about you and your qualifications. It's when you're, you're just blasé about life. That's when you truly need to be concerned. What we're called to do here is to have a sensitive conscience before the Lord, not to be perfect, but to say, I want in. What's sacrificed when we say no? The grace of joy in your life. The vineyard is about joy. It's about crushing grapes and getting juice and being there and and being in this beautiful vineyard. If you've ever been in like Southern California or different places where you see these vineyards that are well irrigated, it's lush and beautiful. It's the grace of holiness when you are right with God in your conscience. Not perfect, but, but subdued by the Lord, repentant of your sin, right with God. He knows what's going on. You, you're honest with your relationship before the Lord. There's holiness that you enjoy, and you're different than Israel that was rejecting Christ, blind to Jesus, don't want the Messiah. We want Egypt. We want Assyria. We want Greece. We want Rome. We don't want Jesus. There's the grace of mission as well. I was drawn to the history of uh, England and how England was a missionary outpost 150 years ago. Think about it now. Do you think about England as the missionary outpost of the world? At that point, that was the vineyard. And J.C. Ryle in the 1800s, he compared this vineyard to England saying that in the 1800s, Britain had the glowing privilege of sending missionaries to win the world to the heathen nations, preachers from a missionary outpost. Who were they? William Carey, who was raised up in the Church of England. 1793, going into the 1800s, he and his wife shipped out to bring the gospel to Bengal, India, which is right next to Bangladesh. It spread throughout that entire country. David Livingston, born in Scotland, the London Missionary Society sent him in 1845 as a medical missionary to the central interior of Africa. My wife and I sat with a pastor, um, befriended him. He's in the southern part of Africa in Lusaka. He 
Um, Conrad in Bayway, we sat with him, and he basically said that he attributes his conversion to the mission and ministry of David Livingston. He was able to trace it with this person that won this person in this church, and that happened, and there he is. Hudson Taylor, he established the China Inland Mission of 50... 51-year career missionary, 1853 is when he was launched. He was launched in colleague from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon was his good friend, sent him out there. He was talking about his mission and ministry to different Ivy League schools, which were mission preacher training centers like Oxford and Cambridge. These are the places that were sending the preachers back then out. And there was six of them from Cambridge that got together and then there was a seventh student from the Royal Military Academy, and they were called the Cambridge Seven. And they followed Hudson Taylor out on the field. C.T. Studd was a, um, a semi-pro or professional cricketer, and, and then he became this theologian and sort of left everything. They went around to um, different colleges before they were going out to China, and they raised uh, you know, camaraderie and a followership. Queen Victoria was pleased to receive a booklet that was contained um, containing the Cambridge Seven's testimonies. A missionary band uh, was called the Evangelization of the World, a missionary band. It was this group of disciples that were going for it. Robert Wilder's student volunteer movement was born out of that. Then in our early colonial period here in America, there was a great revival that was the first great awakening that was spawned by Charles and John Wesley. John Wesley, who was an open-air preacher, George Whitfield, open-air preacher. These were men who were part of the Holy Club who became converted because they created a Christian club, and then they preached the gospel to themselves, studied theology, and they came to life and went, oh, this is what it really means to love Jesus. And they began to preach in the open air and cross the country east to west and, and win Native Americans and win colonists to cross the country. It's what we're still a part of. We're a part of this missionary movement that went all the way east to west to west to west to northwest to Alaska. And here we are evangelizing up here. This is the vineyard. 150 years ago, England was the mission outpost. Now where are we as our country is known for being the mission sending country and is it anymore? The vineyard. We need to stoke the fire for being in God's mission and ministry. Well, Jesus wants to make the clarification for those who are in and those who are out. And he begins with two sons, and then he asks a single question. Two sons, one question. Verse 31. Which of the two did the will of his father? Stop there. This, by the way, is the question of questions. Who did the will of God? This is what Jesus is going to ask you on the last day. Did you do the will of God? This is the question. Whom um, choose you this day whom you will serve? Were you a servant of God following the will of God in your lifetime or not? Which, did, which son did the will of God? This question, by the way, is a clear setup by Christ. Think about him. He's on the, the Sodom, Solomon's portico, probably. He's out in the open air. He's being confronted by the chief priests, by the religious leaders. And he's saying, hey, which son? Which son? You know, one tripped up, didn't want to go, said no, and then went. And the other one said, I go, sir, but didn't go at all. Which son? And they, I think they blurted out the first right away. The first one. That's, that's us, right? I mean, we're the first, so we're aligning with that first son. The first the first. It's a question of questions. You have all of humankind who's being asked this question. You have the converted, the unconverted, the saved, the unsaved, the light, the dark, the blind, 
the seeing, the spirit-filled, the natural, the dead, the alive, those who are dialed into God's will, those who are not, those who are under the headship of Adam, those who are under the headship of Christ, those who are on the narrow road, those who are on the wide road, those who are trying to earn their way into heaven, and those who have the grace of God that was earned only by Christ on the cross. What's amazing is that the chief priests and the elders in this moment, listen to this, they get the answer right but make the wrong application. That's what happens. And I think that is a scary thing that they model for us that we don't want to do. Hey, I know the answer to the Bible question. (laughs) I got 100 on my Bible survey quiz or my test, you know, in homeschool or at Christian school or in Awana. I've got all the verses right. But you're missing the point that your heart needs to change to truly be a follower of Jesus. You just, you know, the answer in Sunday school is always God, Jesus, or the Bible. It's one of those three, right? But just getting the answer right is not enough, especially for these religious leaders, because they missed the point. Yeah, they got the right son, but they made the wrong application. They believed that this was them winning the day with Jesus. You finally know who we are. We're the first son. That's the first. The first son is the one. They're vouching for their own integrity based on privilege and merit. It's exactly where American Christendom thinks that it is. It thinks it's right with God, but really it's done no soul checking, no checking under the hood, no self-analysis. Do I have integrity or not? What's the difference? The difference is simply this. Your standing before God is based on what he's done inside of us, not we've, what we've done to ourselves. The righteousness of Christ works from the inside out, never from the outside in. Simply that. If we try to work our way into heaven, make ourselves right with God, show up enough, give enough, be enough, say enough, sing enough, do enough from the outside to try to correct what's wrong on the inside, we're doomed. Instead, if we say we can't save ourselves, we see ourselves and our sin is filthy, dirty rags. We understand that all have fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We lie to ourselves about thinking we are really good when we are really bad. We're born under a curse and we can only be saved by grace. And we come to Christ and we say, I can bring you nothing. I need your salvation and your saving grace. Only then is the work of grace working from the inside out. So not outside in, but inside out out. These two sons mark the difference between someone whose heart is changed from the inside out, the change of his mind, versus the outside in, where he's like, I'll do it, but really he won't. You can never do enough. You think of the ministry of John the Baptist, who had preached this same message in Matthew 3, 6 through 9. He was baptizing, calling people to confess their sins, And the river Jordan confessed their sins. And it says, but when, verse 7 of Matthew 3, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, you pit of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He was righteously indignant saying, you are, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You, You look all religious on the outside, but you're a snake on the inside. And you're a group of them. 
and you're not scared of hell. You don't believe in the wrath of God to come. You're not really coming because you're afraid for your own soul. You're not really confessing your sins. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Show that there's a heart change. Repentance, the metanoia, which is really the inner man. uh, And your mindset is changed by the Holy Spirit from the inside out. And fruit will come out of that. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham. That's outside in. I've got the Abraham name. I'm good. I got an Abraham shirt. You know, Abe, go Abe. Right? Abraham's our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What Jesus said, or what John the Baptist said, is God is able to change anybody. No matter what family name you subscribe to or come from, God will change anybody, even stones, to be raised up as children of Abraham. In other words, God does the work. Your hypocritical showmanship does me nothing. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Verse 29, again, is the change of mindset, and it's the definition of repentance. And it ties right in with what he says next in verse 31. He says, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. They're the ones who change their mind. They're the ones who are the first son, who said, "Ah, I don't want Jesus I want to be a prostitute. I don't want to be, I don't want Jesus. I want to be a tax collector. But you remember Matthew, his testimony, the author here. He's the one who changed his mind. He followed Jesus. He was different. A tax collector was somebody who was a complete um, kind of Benedict Arnold to the Israelite people. They worked for Rome. They worked as the middleman. They're, they're the bad, you know, version of corrupt money and governance where, you know, they're, they're pulling things. They've got, their, they've got their thumb on the scale. They're taken from the till. They're Zacchaeus. They're overcharging. And they're doing this as extortionists. People did not like this corruption. Basically, a tax collector was on the outs with an Israelite. They weren't welcome to temple worship. They were those who were untrustworthy. They are the ones who are duplicitous. You say you're doing a good thing. You say you're working for the right governor, the right governance, and you're a bad person, and you're hurting us, and you're oppressive. That's the least likely person to be Jesus' example of true repentance. A prostitute also, someone who looked um, to the outside world as filthy, as wrong, as breaking up the lineage of Israel, as introducing and injecting um, paganism and idolatry and immorality into the society. So both politically and ethnically, these two categories were threatening to the security or secure feeling of an Israelite. And so Jesus says, truly, I say to you, they get into the kingdom before you. And he's saying it in front of everybody. Religious people, you thought you were coming after me. Remember, they were saying, what authority do you do these things? How do you do your miracles? Is it of Satan or is it of God? You know, where are you coming from? And Jesus is saying, no, I've got the same authority as John the Baptist. Where is his authority from? And they played passive and said, we don't know. We have no idea. It's too politically hot here. Too many fans of John for us to say one way or the other. And Jesus is saying, well, let me now take it to the next level and just show you that the prostitute and the tax collector, they're welcomed in. They, they said no with their life, but then they said yes, because God changed them from the inside out. 
what hasn't happened yet with you. That's what he was saying. You have people who are part of the devolution, people who are part of the apostasy, people who are racketeers, people who are rejectors of Christ, and then you have the remnant, those who have been given the gift of repentance. He goes on in the next verse where he builds his case with John, verse 32, for John came to you in the way of righteousness. What's he doing here? In verse 32, Jesus is appealing to John again. He'd already appealed to him once in the earlier section about authority. Jesus is modeling for us for how to win people to Christ. When people try to make the issue about you, point them to truth. Don't fight people, fight for truth. Just, and Jesus is saying, hey, look at the ministry of John. He brought the way of righteousness. What did that mean? Well, when John preached, he said, repent of your sins. And here in this section, Jesus is saying the way of righteousness is what you did not believe in. The way of righteousness is coming by grace alone, and it's coming through faith, through believing. He's saying you didn't believe the message. You say, I thought we were talking about repentance, not faith. We're talking talking about repentance and faith. That's what this text is doing. Anytime you're talking about repenting of sin, you're also talking about believing in Jesus. It's two sides of the same coin. Repentance and faith go together. If you're repenting, you're believing. If you're believing, you're repenting. It's always that way. People say, no, all you got to do to get in is just believe in the grace of the gospel, then deal with your sin later. No, if you're dealing with Christ who is holy, then he is acting like a mirror to you and you're dealing with your sin at the same time. To see Christ in all of his glory is also to feel bad about your sin and say, please forgive me. (laughs) It goes together. It's a package deal. And so the way of righteousness was rejected, and he's just pointing that out, saying that John came to you in the way of righteousness, offering the gospel, and you didn't believe in him, meaning you didn't repent. goes on, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. They believed him. They believed the message. They believed. True repentance is this gift. It's not something you drum up. It's not penance. It's not mouthing words. It's not performing actions to appease your guilt. It's never that. It's a gift. In 1 Thessalonians, the early church manifested true repentance. Chapter 1, verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you, listen, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's repentance. I was going this way. I was going after the world. I was going after my flesh. I was trying to do everything I could do to gobble up whatever I could get to try to just solve the the world appetite that is in my heart. And God, you by your grace changed my direction and I went the other way and started to follow Jesus. Why? Because God changed your mind from the inside out. How does that work? Well, it comes by way of prayer. In First or Second Timothy chapter 1, we're supposed to address people with gentleness. Listen to this. Correcting his opponents with gentleness that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. That they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil and, be, and after being captured by him to do his will. How do you get out from the snare of the devil? You're going one way. You want idols. You want the world. God changes your heart. From the inside out, not the outside in. We're supposed to preach to people and teach people with gentleness, patience, 
kindness. In, in, and even in that section in 2 Timothy, the Lord's bondservant um, is able to, to take the hits. It talks about accepting persecution. And then you just gently, humbly talk to them about the Lord. Perhaps God will grant repentance. Well, what do you do if you're in a situation where you're sitting there going, I need to repent. What do I do? If this is a gift, if it's a work of grace in my heart, how do I get it? Let me just suggest this. Go in the privacy of your own heart, even now or later in a room quietly, and ask for it. Say, Lord, give me repentance. Give me a soft heart. I can't do it. I can't bring you anything. Just tell the Lord that. I can't bring you any good works, any righteous, any self-righteousness. I'm stripped bare. You've, You've brought me to the core of myself, and all I can do is look at you and when I look at you, I want you, but I, I see also see my sin, and I'm asking you, forgive me my sins, soften my heart, and give me this gift of repentance, and let me believe in you. It's two sides of the same coin. It's saying, God, forgive me, and I believe in you. Repentance is basically saying, I can't save myself. Only you can save me. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The faith is a gift. Repentance is a gift. Two sides of the same coin. Lord, I just come empty-handed. Please forgive me of my sins. That's a good measure towards repentance. If you come to God, he will not cast you aside. He won't cast you out. He will... He will work this work of grace in your life. The way of righteousness is found through humble repentance. The first son was truly repentant. The second son was not. The first son had the dramatic change of mind. The second son did not. You know, let me make this really practical. There's a lot of things that are going to happen to you in your life. There's a few things that have happened to me and a lot of things that have happened to you that are a lot worse There's a lot of detrimental sadness that happens in life. Lose your job, lose a loved one, lose your reputation. You could lose your freedom, be incarcerated. There's a lot of things that people go through. You lose all your wealth, all your security, lose your friends. A lot of sad circumstances. There's one that's even sadder. The saddest of circumstances is going through all of that apart from the grace of God. The saddest thing is when Jesus says, come into my vineyard, and you say no. And come into the vineyard secures eternal life in the future, but it also gives you a relationship with him now, where you are sustained and enabled to do what? Go through the loss of a loved one, go through the loss of a job, go through the loss of your wealth, go through the loss of your freedom, go through the loss of a friend, lose all your reputation but I have Christ. Remember the prodigal son sitting there ready to eat the swine pots or whatever that is, eat the pig food in the trough (laughs) as a Jew. It's the most unclean thing he possibly could do. He had squandered away all his wealth. He had tried to satisfy his appetites with the world. All of that brought him to the lowest of the low. And it says this unique phrase where he came to himself. Remember that phrase? That's repentance. I'm coming to terms with myself. I know what I'm not, and I know who I need. 
Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all of our sin. Grace that will cleanse us and pardon within. It only comes as a gift. Here's another parable just to show you these two categories of people. One who is the first son and the second. Luke 18, 9 through 14, he also told this parable. To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated the others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. God, because this is how a self-righteous Pharisee would pray. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. That's the second son. Here's the first son. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles humbles himself will be exalted look at verse 32 just the very end the last phrase look at this it's both indicting and inviting at the same time and even when you saw it this is jesus again addressing the chief priests and the teachers the elders and he says you saw it what did they see you saw tax collectors get saved you saw matthew get saved i mean matthew's the one writing this down you saw a matthew testimony You saw Mary, who had seven demons cast out of her, who was a a prostitute. You saw these radical transformations. You saw it. And what happened? You did not afterward change your minds and believe in him. Nothing happened. You saw it, and you went, I don't care. That's the danger zone. That's both an indictment, it's also an invitation. I think Jesus could be taking the defibrillator paddles and going, just see it, believe. Don't be hardened, be softened. Here's the question, are you in the vineyard? Do you want to work the vineyard? Final appeal, come to Christ. Come to his vineyard. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our test text and your testimony. Thank you for the teaching of your word. God, I thank you that the success of a sermon like this is only what you do in the heart of someone now by your truth. And God, we know the truth sets people free. We pray that, God, you're setting people free in their hearts to believe, to repent, to believe, to have the soft heart, and for us all to grow in grace therein. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.